Morning again, church. It's uh, good to be back, but um, terrifying to be rusty. Just a little rusty, I think, you know, uh, getting back and getting going. Um, I don't see uh, any first-time faces, except uh, I, I can't, can't let it go without embarrassing her just a little bit. Elizabeth's here with us today. Hey, how you doing, dear? It's good to have you. Um, I'm just uh, looking around. I don't want to leave anybody out. And of course, uh, we welcomed Beth earlier. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what to, what to review and what not. But um, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the cross. What happened when we were preaching through the Gospel of John is that a particular verse got a hold of me like it often does. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the stumbling block and the foolishness of the cross. And it brought us to, a couple weeks ago, it brought us to looking at the seven churches because we wanted to, I wanted to begin to talk about power. I wanted to begin to apply um, this idea of the power of the cross, the difference between um, what the world looks upon it, the difference between the way the church looks at it, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world, the difference between those two powers and what will happen in the end, what happened in the past, in church history and what will happen in the end. So of course it, it brought me to Revelation two and three and the seven churches in Revelation because the seven churches in Revelation serve as a history for us, a future for John. It was all future when he wrote it down as to what was going to happen. But for us, it represents the church's history from 34 AD all the way to today and beyond from Ephesus to Laodicea. And I'm not gonna, I said we're not gonna go through all seven churches, although I've been looking at next, at next week and pro- might have to do three or four real quick and, and, and to get to the, uh, the second one that I, that I wanna go to. But um, just a, a reminder where John begins in our first church back in Ephesus. I wanted to emphasize, first of all, the era in which it's associated to, from 34 CE to about 110 CE. CE is uh, the better way to say AD, okay? 34 AD to 110 AD. The church was dealing with a lot of stuff. Brand new church, brand new um, mission, if you will. And so they were dealing with a lot of stuff and the thing that Jesus liked about Ephesus was that they were addressing heresy and keeping the doctrine pure. They were seeking out false teachings and they were weeding it out, all good stuff, stuff that you need in the first years of a movement, if you will. But the one thing that he had against them, everybody remembers what that was? They lost their first what? They lost their first love. They're going about doing their mission, forgetting their first love. And their first love isn't their love for God. Our first love is never our love for God. The first love is God's love for us. And I kind of put through that all in together because the one thing that, that at the time that this church was dealing with this, at the time that John says, this is what's going on with you, it was just a few years later that he actually writes his gospel, I believe, to address this very thing. And that's the doubt that creeps in to every believer at any given time, and that is the doubt of whether or not God really loves us. 
And John wrote in his gospel, he told his disciples himself, he said in John 16, 26, on that day you will ask in my name, I do not say that, you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Sometimes when we teach the intercession of Jesus as our high priest, that he's going in there to calm down an angry father, to calm down the father, because Jesus has to do something in order for him to love us. And that is a wrong view of intercession. That's a terribly wrong view. He's not going in to calm the father down. He's not going in to convince God to love us. He said, for the father himself loves you. You know, and for a Jewish man living in the first century, that was a coin flip. That was revolutionary. The disciples were convinced that this man, this guy right here who claimed to be the son of God, we know he loves us. We've been with him for three and a half years. I know he loves us. But there was always that doubt in their mind as to the God of the Father, the God of all Israel, right? I don't know what I'm gonna get when I come to him. I get a plague or I get manna. And Jesus said, if you know that I love you, then you can be sure that the Father loves you. You can be sure that the Father loves you. Because you loved me and have believed that I came from God. So the power of the cross is the ultimate expression of that love. For God so loved the world, for the Father so loved the world that he sent his son, that he sent him. So the power of the cross is that ultimate revelation. If we're looking for a better revelation that God loves us, I'm sorry, you'll be looking till the end of time because we were given that revelation sometime around 33 AD. And there's not another one coming. God says, I think I've given you enough information so that you can know that I love you. And I've always loved you, always. So that power then comes up against the church. It comes up against them, if you will. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles what? Foolishness, remember that, that power. Because the power seems to be an anti-power. The power of the cross seems to be an anti-power because Jesus didn't conquer the way the world conquers, did he? In fact, he conquered by giving his own life. He conquered by giving his life. So it seems to be an anti-power. Like I said, it's what Dr. Gregory Boyd calls power under. The world exercises power over and the world is excellent at it. Might makes right. Jesus exercised power under. Giving, sacrificing. That doesn't cut it in the world. That doesn't cut it in the kingdom of the world but it's the only power that matters in the kingdom of heaven. It's the only power that matters. So the call to this church to remember this love, the call to Ephesus to remember this love is timely, and it has a profound effect on the church, apparently, because starting in 110 CE, it leads to a new theme. The church all of a sudden is about something else. Before, it was about heresy and addressing it and keeping it pure. But Jesus said, remember your first love. The church then begins to remember the first love and it isn't heresy anymore. The theme of the day now with the church is martyrdom. 
The next church at Smyrna is known as the Suffering Church. Era begins about 110 CE and goes all the way to 313 CE, if you will. So the letter says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty. Even though you are rich, I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Forgive me, I read that first line wrong. Hold on a second. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. Now I got that right. Even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have affliction. Be faithful until what? Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Smyrna was only 40 miles from Ephesus. The Greeks built it in 1000 BC, BCE if you will. And then it was destroyed by the Lydians in 600 BC. Then Lysimachus, the emperor Lysimachus, rebuilt it in 200 BC. Literally Smyrna, the city, was resurrected from its own ruins. Jesus comes to Smyrna as the first and the last, was dead and came to what? And came to life. It isn't a coincidence that death and resurrection permeates this letter. Dr. John Pauline tells us that in addition to Jesus' introduction to the recipients of the letter, they're headed for death. The very name Smyrna has been associated with myrrh, the balm of death. In the first century, you anointed the body with myrrh. Smyrna itself, it's the very smell. When they smell uh, myrrh, it's, it's a sweet smell, but they used it so much for anointing bodies that it becomes associated with death. Remember, we learned last, uh, last time that usually the picture of Jesus' character that is introduced is just what the church needs for her, her problem at that particular time. Smyrna is one of two churches, remember, that receives absolutely no rebuke. Jesus has nothing bad to say about Smyrna. There is absolutely no rebuke. He'll only do that again in Philadelphia. Everything that they're doing, Jesus is all for. Jesus' answer to Smyrna is resurrection. Just as your city was resurrected out of its ruins, my answer to you is resurrection. I am the first and the last, he said. I am of the dead and I have now come to what? Come to life. That's their answer. So look what he says they are about to Undergo. He says, I know your what? First one. I know your affliction. Affliction, it's a Greek word meaning pressure. Pressure from the outside. The stress in this church is not from within. 
Remember, uh, the one thing that he has against Ephesus, it's their problem. It's not the world doing this to Ephesus. It's Ephesus' problem. It's coming from within the church, right? This one, no. The affliction is coming from the outside, not from within. It's not because the church is dysfunctional. It's coming from the world around it. It's coming from the empire in which Smyrna finds itself. In Greek, it can be psychological affliction. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical. It could be psychological. It could be emotional. And notice Jesus addresses it by three words. Do not fear. Whatever is about to happen, he says, let, <laughs> let anything happen, just don't be what? Just don't be afraid. Just don't be afraid. And he said it before, he's told his disciples this, they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, you will be hated by all nations because of who? Because of my name, he's already told them that. If it, it, it's, it, it's not if it will happen, if it will happen, it's going to happen, he said, and when it does, just don't what? Just don't fear. Just don't fear. I know not only your affliction, I also know your what? Your poverty. That word for poverty right there, I wanna let you know, this is not lower middle class. This is not working class poor. This is absolutely destitute. The verb for that word for poverty right there is literally to become a beggar. I know your poverty. They have no riches to hold them back. They have no love of riches to hold them back. They are indeed poor. They are absolutely destitute. But this church, destitute in finances, is rich where? They have spiritual wealth, don't they? I know you're poor, I know your affliction, and I know you're poor, although you are rich. Although you are rich. They've got no riches, as I said, they've got no riches or love of riches to be attached to. C.S. Lewis used to argue if Jesus had any favorites. Does Jesus have favorites? Yeah, he does. You, you're favorite. You're his favorite. But amongst us, amongst us, does he have favorites? Because Lewis argued he seems to be particularly inclined to the what? To the poor. He likes being around them. He spends time with them. He likes feeding them. He likes preaching, encouraging uh, to them. Uh, when, when you asked him as Messiah what the, the uh, message or what the mission and the message of the Messiah is, I came to uh, announce freedom for the poor, to alleviate the captives. I came specifically for who? For the poor. And by the way, if he's not talking about finances to Smyrna, easy. He's not necessarily talking about finances to us either. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For they will be what? They will be filled. It's just that the poor doesn't ever, uh, the, the way that Lewis put it, the, the way that I like it, is that they have no reason to be pretentious. They've got no reason to do anything but hold out an empty hand. The rich, 
those of us who are rich, we have trouble holding out an empty hand. We have trouble being destitute when we're supposed to be destitute because we've always got something, don't we? We can make it. We can do it. A couple extra shifts, maybe a second job, maybe money that we've saved. But a poor person can do nothing but hold out an empty hand. The reason that, that they love Jesus' message is because the poor don't know where their next meal is coming from and they can't provide it. They've been holding out an empty hand all their lives. So when Jesus gives this message of being absolutely poor in spirit, the poor have no trouble saying, you know what, I don't have anything of my own. I've never had anything of my own. So they hold out an empty hand. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page seven, and talking about righteousness and salvation is the way that Ellen White puts it. He who feels whole, who thinks that he is reasonably good, is contented with his condition, does not seek to become a partaker of the grace and righteousness of Christ. Those who know they cannot possibly save themselves or of themselves do any righteous action are the ones who appreciate the help that Christ can bestow. They are the poor in spirit and he declares them to be blessed. The poor are the only ones to fit, if you will, to receive the kingdom of heaven because the poor are the only ones who really know what it means to truly receive, not to deserve not to uh, think of a time where you may be able to pay it back. The poor can literally receive the kingdom. The poor have no trouble believing in somebody that would empty themselves, pour out their blood for them. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's telling the Corinthians of the great things coming out of Macedonia. They're receiving the grace of God in abundance. Paul puts it this way, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become what? Might become rich. I love the language here. In public speaking, you call this the language of floating opposites, if you will, absolute opposites. It, it demonstrates the severity. It emphasizes what's going on here. Ordeal of affliction, abundance of joy. Deep poverty, overflowing in wealth. He was rich. He became poor. His poverty, we become rich. Notice what he's emphasizing. In our poverty, we become what? Rich. Because he came, became poor in order to make us rich. Affliction, poverty, the next is what? It's slander. Abusive speech, being slandered, to injure the reputation of... Once again, that's the experience of who? That's the experience of Jesus. That all happened to Jesus, right? He was poor, he experienced poverty, right? He was afflicted, afflicted for our sins, all of those things. And now, it's slander. 
He did, he did not deserve the things said about him. None of them were true, but received injurious sayings about him and those around him. As a matter of fact, they slandered him in order to be able to crucify him. We do have examples, by the way, of the church at this time, of the church in Smyrna, of what the church began to experience under the empire, if you will, under the Roman Empire. Christians were constantly being slandered. They were accused of being cannibals because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of Christ. The agape celebrations that they were famous for were talked about as orgies of debauchery by non-Christians. They were accused of atheism because their God was invisible. The empire says, show us your God. And the church says, we can only show you our God by our acts, by our love, not good enough for the empire. The state suspected them always because they would never swear allegiance to the emperor as Lord. They were accusing of having foretold the end of the world by fire. That's a charge that Nero exploited to the max when he let Rome burn. He was successfully able to blame it on the Christians. What's interesting too, as Jesus says in this letter about the synagogue of Satan and the Jews and the true Jews and the, and the ones that think they are but they're not, right, that slander the other ones. What's interesting is that these Christians in this century, if you will, after the first century, getting into the second century, they were despised because they were also identified as Jewish. Part of the religion considered still by the empire to be remote and, and backward and just a pain, an absolute pain in the neck. As a matter of fact, by this time, they burned down the temple and sacked Jerusalem 30 years ago and these people still won't go away. And they won't until 135, when actually Rome goes in, destroys Jerusalem again, and kicks every Hebrew out of Palestine. But the slander comes from the Jews who call themselves Jews. It's a remarkable thing that this hints, if you will, that Christians at this time still considered themselves to be Jews, even though they knew the Jews were despised by the empire. They still take their stand. They stand with them as neighbors. It's a remarkable thing. Today, we can't even look at fellow Christians without accusing them of being of the synagogue of Satan because of some difference in doctrine, right? But back then, the Christians of Smyrna considered themselves much closer to their Jewish brothers and sisters than they did the paganism of the empire. There might be one other thing, too, why the empire despised Christians, absolutely despised them the most. I have a quote here from Pliny the Younger. Pliny was a historian, a Roman historian, and it's interesting that he lived from 61 to 112 CE. So that makes him just old enough to live and to write and everything during this church. And he actually writes of the persecution of the church. He writes uh, discussing the torture of two Christian women that were tortured by the empire. Guess what he calls them? 
He calls them deacons. These two women who were tortured were deacons in the church. And he comes to the conclusion at the end of this discussion saying, he describes Christianity then as a depraved and excessive superstition. Why? Because it seems that they have women as leaders. And the Roman patriarchy despised women as leaders. I'm hard, I'm very hard on biblical patriarchy, you know that I am, but the Romans were even worse, absolutely the worst. And here you have a Roman historian quoted that one of the reasons we despise this group is because they've got the nerve to put women in leadership. Christianity is known by this time as a threat to the Roman patriarchy. So, Smyrna's mission, if you will, Smyrna's Christianity is not one of great victory, is it? It's a stumbling Christianity, isn't it? Every time it comes up against, every time, it's got nothing going for it. They've got no money, they've got no resources, they have no might. Constantly being afflicted, constantly being slandered, It is indeed a stumbling Christianity. This is not the Christianity of jeweled crowns. It isn't the Christianity of preaching once and 3,000 baptized. Those days seem to be gone. Doesn't imply that they don't have success or fame. They came from the poorest of cities. They have to endure the hostility of pagan masses. Sometimes I speak out of turn because I don't know a heck of a lot about it, but in the, in the study of Hinduism and the caste system, you know, there's, there's levels of, of blessedness in, in, in the caste system. And you have, and, 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 and usually the ones up on top are the ones that are blessed, that are absolutely blessed in the world. They have riches, they have money, they have education, right? And then the lower, the lowest of the lowest of caste, they call the untouchables. It's, it's the ones that have leprosy and the skin diseases and everything else. It's the lowest. I, from what I understand today in Christianity, the hardest uh, caste to reach by Christianity in India today is the rich. You know Why? because the lower castes have already accepted him. The lower castes have already become Christian. The lower castes have seen the resurrection of their poverty. Sometimes I wonder about our modern sensibility as our message being one of success and fame. Just join and everything will be okay. We have the right message. Do you want to be right? You don't want to be wrong anymore, do you? So join, and if you join, you'll always be right. Everything will be good. I don't have that testimony, do you? My life didn't become complicated until after I came to Christ. My life before Christ was very easy because I was able to indulge every selfish whim that came to my mind because I, I had money, I had privilege, and I could do it. 
Then I met Jesus. Messed the whole thing up. But I'm just saying that when I joined this church, I heard about this message of success, right? Just live the right life, just pay your tithe, just do these things. And I love what Elder Morris Venden said. He said, the reason that we all believe this, that if we do the right things, then we will be blessed and we will be blessed now, is that we all grew up listening to the stories of a certain uncle of ours. A certain uncle who said that every farmer that paid his tithe would never have his crops eaten by blight. And if you never took the last slice of pie, you didn't have to worry that your mom baked a piece of soap in it. And Elder Venden said, I grew up with that uncle. I believed him. He said, then I met a farmer one day who actually, the locusts only ate his crops. They left the two other neighboring farms alone who were not tithe payers, and they only ate his crops. And Elder Venden said, so how did you feel about that? Were you upset? He goes, no. He said, if, the, if God wanted to uh, feed his locusts with his crops, that's fine with me. We speak so much about success that being a Christian brings in this life. We miss the fundamental truth of this letter. That this life is not what matters. I'm gonna amend that. This life does matter. This life matters to God. And everyone in it matters. It's just not the ultimate arbiter of who you are and who I am. It's, this life is not the ultimate arbiter as to where we find our citizenship. It matters a great deal. If this life didn't matter at all, why did he spend so much time and effort and blood and sweat and tears to save us? This life matters. But this life does not dictate to who we are as citizens. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven because we've been given the power of the cross. What's funny though is that Smyrna finds absolutely no comfort here and they don't seek it at all. Jesus tells them so. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer and that's what's interesting is is that if Jesus were to come in here right now and say, guys, here's what's gonna happen, all right? Here's what's gonna happen. Some of you are gonna go to prison. You're gonna get hit with a horrific bout of poverty. You're going to be afflicted. Some of you will go to prison. Some of you will be made slaves. Don't fear unto death. What did he just tell us? He just told us it was gonna happen, didn't he? He just didn't say when. That's what he tells this church. The message to this church is hang on until death. As far as terms of this world, he's got absolutely no good news for him, does he? He tells them that this is going to end in their what? In their death. And still then is able to say, just don't be afraid. Because you hang on until your death, you hang on until you die, I'll give you the crown of life. You'd be resurrected just like me. 
the one who comes to this church as the first and the last, one who was dead, who is now alive. So Smyrna reminds us of what it once was, teach us what it can be and will be soon. There's nothing to this life that should hold us. Eternal life was always about what it was supposed to be. The first death was never our enemy. The second death could be our enemy, but not the first death. And this first life was never our triumph. It's coming. So the era of persecution in the church was from, say, 303 CE under the emperor Diocletian when he ushers in the era of martyrdom. He issued an edict that ordered all Christian communities dissolved. He demolished their churches. He burned all their books. He martyrs thousands. He enslaves even more. There were very many revered saints in church history that were martyred and killed and butchered in that decree. Saint Sebastian pierced by a hundred arrows up against a tree. Cecil and Agnes both burned at the stake. The last wave of persecution ends in 311 CE when Diocletian and the others begin to fight it out as to who is going to be the new emperor and when he wins the battle, Constantine becomes the emperor, and two years later, he issues the Edict of Constantine, 313 CE, making Christianity the official religion of the empire. The persecuting power now is going to invite in the power of the cross. Something's gonna happen to Christianity after this. Something that was never supposed to happen. Well, I guess, if you've been with us in, in, in prayer meeting, when we say what's supposed to happen and what isn't, everything happens according to what? Everything happens according to prophecy. <laughs> but I'm just saying that as far as the power of the cross, it never, ever should have been hijacked like this. But it was. Did anybody ever dream that one day one day, the power of the cross and the power, the power of the kingdom of heaven and the power of the kingdom of the world would become one so that nobody could tell the difference. So remember I told you before that when I look at the world, I try to accept the world as it is. I don't spend a lot of energy cursing at the world for being who they are. They're just who they are. It is what it is, aren't they? We shout at the dark for being dark. I got no problem with the world being that way. My problem is when the darkness tries to become our light. And when we make the darkness our light, now I got a problem. So yeah, the next two sermons, you may not like it a heck of a lot because I've got a problem with this. I'll start with Constantine. I'll start with Constantine and I'll move all the way to Laodicea. Okay? But he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 10 days, it's very interesting. If we take the day to year principle, that's 10 years. That era of persecution lasted exactly from 303 to 313. 
And the number 10 uh, goes exactly into many, many prophetic writings as uh, periods, if you will, of symbolism of of, uh, tribulation and persecution. The 10 days from Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets to Yom Kippur, is, is a hearkening, a tribulation to come back to God. 10 days to experience forgiveness. 10 generations from Adam to Noah, humanity on trial, tested before the flood. 10 from Noah to Abraham, 10 ordeals endured by Abraham, 10 plagues in Egypt. But Jesus says, it's all just a test. It's all just a test. A test that implies that there's a reward waiting. Death and failure will not have the last word. Hope exists even in the midst of the death and failure. Love exists in the midst of the death and the failure. The power of the cross is like yeast, it's like water, it finds everywhere. And you won't even be able to put it out with your death. The whole reason for the trial in the first place. So I know what happens when we look at this church. What do we immediately, uh, as Adventists, what do we immediately um, begin to think about? We begin to to worry, we begin to fear, because we're not being persecuted right now, are we? And and maybe, maybe if we're not being persecuted, we won't be ready. So we end up looking at this and we end up all of a sudden now feeling guilty too. Feeling guilty about everything that we don't do. We feel guilty about having money when we're supposed to be poor. We feel guilty about not doing what we're supposed to do or doing what we're not supposed to do. When the point is this, that isn't the point of the letter. If that's what your fear is right now, the point of the letter is don't worry, you've got nothing to fear. Because this letter isn't about death. It's about life. What we are never to fear is the second death, if we have Jesus. And we certainly don't fear the first death. In fact, in some cases, we might invite the first death. The first death is a nap. How about that? How'd you like a nap? Sometimes I think all I need is a nap. Right? Everybody needs a nap. Sometimes I feel sorry for those that are still gonna be alive when Christ comes. They don't get their nap. But the idea of being laid to rest, laid to go to a nap in the love of Jesus, man, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing of what Jesus can do with the death of this planet. And then still say the words, you got nothing to fear. Hang in there. You got nothing to fear. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him that can destroy both body and soul in hell. There's no fear in love because love casts out what? Love casts out fear. See, those who, love, uh, those who love fear nothing. They fear no punishment. And that's what happened. Ephesus remembers their first love And now all of a sudden, all of that doesn't matter anymore. And they are willing to go out and willing to give it all. They hold nothing back. If the church would remember that God loves them, then we would have love. 
and we'd have no fear. And we'd have love to become martyrs. It's that slander, though. It's going to be a theme, if you will. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The one thing that, that this letter does warn about is all that persecution is not simply coming from the outside. It's also going to come from where? It's also going to come from the inside. There are going to be believers who claim to be believers, but they are not. And the way that we'll be able to tell is because of their slander. So it's a warning. What I said before, it's a warning that I want to, I've got a problem when the church begins to look at the darkness of the world and try to make it the light of the world, the light of the church. I've got a problem now. The problem with this power is that it's going to come from without and it's going to come from within. And it'll go all the way to Philadelphia. Chapter three, verse nine, even in Philadelphia, it says, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, the slander, the lying, those, those who will mix those two powers and bring it into the church, attempt to bring it into the church, attempt to make it part of the mission, attempt to make it part of the message of the end time. It's going to last all the way through Philadelphia. So persecution will come from the state and from within the church, the synagogue. There are believers that will slander. But those of us that are living as martyrs in the midst of all that, we've got nothing to what? We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Ephesus forgets their first love and when it's remembered, that love that they remember takes hold of the church to where the church is willing to sacrifice herself completely and willingly. You have affliction, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So to conclude, I want you to start thinking about this. I want you to start thinking about if we are supposed to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, why is it that we use the same standards for success as the world does? Numbers, popularity, riches. George Knight once said the problem with Adventists is that every problem that arises in Adventism is that the day they learn to count because now they count everything. Dollars baptisms, pieces of literature, mission stories. And what's successful is when those numbers come back, right? Attendees, members. We use the same definition of success. Could that be one of the reasons why we preach Christ crucified to believers a stumbling block. That this is what we stumble on. This perversion of power that will begin to arise after Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. The stumbling block, the perversion of the power. This mixture begins now. And it's going to be with us 
all the way to Laodicea. And if you think about it, Laodicea is the very last appeal from Jesus to put the power away, to open the door and let me in. I shared with you last week Abraham Heschel's um, idea of what happened to religion in the world when he said that some people blame you know, the world and secular attack for religion declining in today's society. But he says, it would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined, not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant. Dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion. So I'm just saying that that authority is now coming. And if you ask, if you ask many millennials that, that, that have left the, their churches and our church at the same time, the one thing that has become completely distasteful is we are doing nothing but speaking in the name of authority. We're looking for authority. We're looking for power. We're looking to take the cross and make it a weapon against those who we don't feel belong. And well, all along, Jesus is asking for the love to remember that you are loved because it's the only shot we got. It's the only shot we got at being able to love everyone else. When religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. To make the cross a weapon in the uh, power of the world is in essence, the church makes it meaningless for the next 1260 years. So, just remember what he told us today. Hang in there. You might die. You might have to be a martyr. But hang in there. Hang in there. And I'll give you the crown of life. That's a promise for us today. Thanks for hanging in there.